Lord Jesus, you are worthy of it all. We praise you, we exalt you, we thank you for your presence. Lord, we are humbled today at what we're going to study. We tremble at what we're going to study. What mankind does with what we're going to study today determines his eternal destination. So Lord, please clear our minds, clear our hearts as we study the crucifixion, the pinnacle, the apex of Christianity. So Lord, we love you, we praise you. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here in person or online that's not saved, that's not born again, that's not following you, Lord, get us out of the way and touch their hearts through the message. This is love. This is pure love that we're going to study. And we love you and praise you. Thank you for this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. You may have a seat. Great to see everyone this morning. So this morning we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, we're studying verses 33 through 50, and I want to read the first couple of verses before I get into my teaching. Matthew chapter 27, verse 33, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they had divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, um, just change our hearts, transform us. Let us see the power of the cross and let us see love. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Amen. If I ask each of you, um, how would you define God's love? What would you say? If, I, if you had to put God's love in a sentence or you had to write a definition, what would that statement say? If somebody came up to you and says, um, Wayne, describe to me the love of God. How would you define it? How would you define the love of God? The reason we put a cross up in our sanctuary here is so that every single Sunday when people visit Calvary Chapel Irmo, they are reminded up on stage with a visual reminder of God's love. You cannot properly define the love of God without talking about the cross, okay? Okay, you cannot define the love of God without, without mentioning, explaining, or helping people understand the cross. Paul said in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is the evidence of God's love towards us. It is his statement 
displaying to us his great love for us. Uh, John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his own, one's life for his friends. So Jesus says in John 15, Greater love has no one than this. In other words, the cross is the greatest example of love. And it was God's love demonstrated towards you and I. The cross defines the love of God. So this morning, we are going to study the love of God, the love of God put into action. Amen? The day Jesus Christ was crucified was the darkest day in human history. And it was the most glorious day. It was a dark day for 11 disciples. Before their very eyes, Jesus was crushed under the iron hand of the Roman government and the Jewish leaders. The disciples were perplexed. Take yourself there. Think about it. The disciples were perplexed. They were crushed. They were paralyzed in fear. It was their worst nightmare. It was worse than 9-11. They were devastated. Yet, in the spirit realm, in the supernatural realm, it was a glorious day. It was a glorious day. The Lamb of God was giving himself on the altar of Calvary for, we could say, the sin of the world. But let's make it more personal. He was laying himself on the altar of Calvary for your sin, for my sin. Jesus, in his omniscience, had your name, your face on his mind as he was in chains going through the Via Della Rosa, carrying his cross, going to the cross. He had you and I on his mind, and nothing was going to stop him from making a way for you to be forgiven of your sin and to demonstrate, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, to demonstrate his love for you. That, my friend, is the love of God. So let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 27, picking it up at verse 33. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, let's stop there. Golgotha, if you have King James or New King James, your translation says Calvary. Golgotha was not a beautiful sloping hillside with beautiful flowers and trees like we see in all the Easter artwork every Easter. Golgotha, Calvary, it was hideous. It was dark. It was a very uh, scary place. The church father Jerome wrote, I quote, in 346 AD, he says, uh, Golgotha was a place of execution and death. He says this, the skulls of previously executed criminals covered the ground. It was a place of death. It was also called Golgotha because of the outcropping of the hillside. It resembled a skull. So this was a place this was a, um, a political place. This is a place where Rome took political prisoners, people that rebelled against them. They did it on this outcropping of this hill, uh, up on top of the hill. And they did it up on the hill so that all people could see, this is what will happen if you rebel against us. 
but yet God in his sovereignty chose this as the avenue for the crucifixion of his son. The Persians created um, the method of crucifixion around 300 uh, BC. The Romans perfected it. It was meant to uh, inflict maximum pain. It was meant to be the most humiliating thing that could be done to a human being as a way of saying to all the people, this is what will happen to you. It was very dark. It was very difficult for the disciples to watch from a distance and for Mary Magdalene and Mary and all them to watch from a distance. It was very hard for them uh, seeing him on Golgotha, the place of the skull, verse 33. Verse 34 says, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall and after tasting it, he he was unwilling to drink. If you study all four Gospels, Jesus is offered drink twice. He's offered drink at the very beginning, which is this drink offering, and then he's later on in the crucifixion, later on the day, he's going to be offered drink again. However, this first um, drink offering that was offered to him, it contained what we call gall. That's what it says there, verse 34. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. Gall was a narcotic uh, meant to numb the excruciating pain of the criminal. It was a way of putting him out of his misery. It's like someone's in the hospital and they're, they're in a lot of pain and they're, they're fixing to die. So what do the doctors do? They, they, they give them morphine. They give them medicine to relieve the pain. That was the purpose of the gall. But Jesus refused. Jesus refused knowing he had to endure the suffering as the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sin of the world, okay? He, he couldn't let this medicine, this narcotic, he, could, he, he knew, he knew from birth, he knew from when he came into this world, this was his mission, to die on the cross for our sin, to make a way to... Uh, to, to, to demonstrate who he was. Pilate said to him, he says, uh, what is truth? He says, what is truth? And Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he's, he's, he, this is full on going to the cross. Verse 35, it says, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Again, the, the purpose of crucifixion was to maximize humiliation and pain. Jesus is, is laid on a cross. His hands and feet are nailed uh, to a wooden beam. The cross is raised and it's dropped into the hole with a sickening thud as Jesus is crucified. And, and then it says that they sat down. And they begin to watch over him. You know, I, I, the text doesn't tell us, but what was it like for the Roman soldiers who stood there close to the cross as they are dividing up his garments and they are looking at, I wonder what that image might have looked like as from whatever angle they could see Jesus, whether they were close to his feet or 10 feet away or 20 feet away or 30 feet away. What was it like to see Jesus hanging on the cross dying. God is dying on the cross. What was it like? I want to read to you a medical report 
by Dr. David Tarasaka. You can find this medical report on blueletterbible.com. But I want to read to you what, what Dr. Tarasaka says concerning the physical body and crucifixion. He says this, and I quote, To support the body, spikes six to eight inches long were driven in the wrist or the hands, going through the, what they call the median nerve. Back then, they considered the wrist and the hands part of the hands. This would have caused shock waves of pain to radiate through, throughout his arms. The cross being raised, a tremendous strain would be put on the wrist, the arms, and the shoulders. It would result in a dislocation of the shoulders and elbows and joints. With the arms being held up and in the outward, the rib cage would be in a fixed inspiratory, making it extremely difficult to exhale, impossible to take a full breath. That explains the seven short statements of Jesus on the cross. He didn't have enough breath in his lungs to give a discourse from the cross. He had to give these short phrases, these short sentences. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I am thirsty. Um, There were short statements because that's all he could put out. With his arms extended on the cross, the only, this is good. I mean, this is powerful. I'm going to read this kind of semi-slowly so you can picture it in your mind. With his arms extended on the cross, the only way to take a deep breath was for Jesus to push his body up with his nailed feet. With the transfer of body weight from his arms and upper body to his feet and lower body, the breathing became easier. That's why he would push up so he could take air into his lungs but then by pushing up and being able to breathe extreme pain and shock waves would convulse through his lower body the pain would become so unbearable the victim would slump down on the cross and in some cases most cases according to Josephus and the people that were crucified back then they would lose consciousness because of the pain you know um, we need to understand this we need to understand this. And, and the reason I share with you and I pull everything out of here I can is because I want your faith in Jesus to go deep. I want your devotion to go deep. I want you to understand the cross. And man, let me tell you, man, studying it, learning it, soaking in it, it will just make you love Jesus more. It'll make you obey Jesus more. It'll make you want to follow Jesus more. So there's our Savior the one that blessed the little kids, the one that encouraged the disciples, the one that fed the 5,000, the one who went around doing all, all this good stuff in Israel. He went around healing people of sicknesses and disease. At this point, there is Jesus, the Lamb of God, hanging from the cross, hanging from the cross. Jesus at this point, remember last week, uh, we looked at the, the scourgings, the beatings, uh, the blindsided punches by the high priest, uh, the, the multiple um, coats that he had on from after he was shredded. They put a coat on him, took it off, put another coat on him, reopening the wounds. At this point, Jesus is most likely unrecognizable on the cross. He has been through the meat grinder. Let's pick it up at verse 37. 
And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Most likely, this sign was created back at the praetorium before Jesus was carried out to the cross. And most likely, as Jesus went through the Via Della Rosa carrying his cross, Roman soldiers would walk to the left and right of Jesus with a sign saying, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. On this side, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. It was meant to make a statement. This is what will happen to you if you, um, if, if you rebel against Rome. John chapter 19, verse 20, tells us that this sign was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Why did they write it in three different languages? It was written in three different languages because it was a political statement. It was a political statement. Rome wanted all the people to know. Remember, this is Passover. People from all over the known world have gathered at Jerusalem. So there's all walks of life, all these different languages. So it's written in all these different languages so that all the people will know Rome's in charge, you rebel, you'll follow suit. Verse 38, verse 38 through 40. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Now, as we get into these next few verses, um, I want you to look at the, consider the flow of the people's response to Jesus and realize this, it continues and it builds. What continues and what builds? The mocking. The mocking of Jesus. The ridicule. Okay? So in verses um, 39, it says those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. This is the common people of the day, the people from all walks of life that had come to Jerusalem. They are mocking Jesus. They are, are hurling abuse at Jesus. They are wagging their heads at Jesus, just, just humiliating him and, and making fun of him. And they, they mock him even with their words. <laughs> if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. I mean, it was a, it was a complete humiliation, especially considering... Jesus is, is most likely, he's physically unable. You remember, uh, they had to have someone carry his cross because of the beating. He, he's in a, a state of helplessness in his flesh as he's dying away, and they are just hurling insults. Now, you know this from being in, in grade school. Uh, unfortunately, when someone gets picked on, what do a lot of the other kids do? They pile on, unfortunately, in kids. You, maybe you've experienced that in school where you were picked on in school or you saw someone picked on, and what happened? More people just start piling on. Well, that's, what, that's, what, that's, that's the exact same situation that happens in this text. So the common people, verses um, 39 and 40, now look at verse 41 and 42. We see a different category of people. He says, in the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him. 
So the religious community there in Jerusalem is mocking him. And they say in verse 42, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. I think that maybe they probably saw what was going on. They saw the common people passing by, hurling inserts, mocking Jesus. So what do they do? They follow suit. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they see Jesus' lifeless body hanging on the cross. And what do they do? What would, what would most people do? Oh my goodness, we've got to help this guy. He is, he is being treated very, very badly at the hands of these Romans. But what do they do? They, they, they pile on. They continue the mocking. So they mock Jesus. The people mock Jesus. The religious leaders mock Jesus. And, 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 and they mock him. Now that's important. One, one night we're going to do a study on, on, on the, the, the mocking that's done against Christianity. It's throughout the whole entire Bible. There's this spirit in the age of the world where they laugh at Christianity. They mock Christianity. Um, in Acts chapter 2, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. And what did the people do? Go look at it. They mocked them. Acts chapter 17, verse 32. Paul is in Athens. He's preaching the resurrection. And the wise guys, the scholars of the age, what do they do? They laugh at him. They, they mock him. Uh, what did they do back in the days of Noah? They mocked him. They laughed at him as he prepared the ark and knew God's judgment was coming. They, they, they mocked him. There is this mocking. There is this humiliation that the world likes to pile on to people that believe the Bible and trust in Christ. Um, part of being a follower of Jesus is you and I enduring the mocking. You take the Bible serious and the world will laugh at you. You believe in a literal creation, a literal seven days, and you reject evolution as a fairy tale for grown-ups, the world will laugh at you. You believe a man named Jonah was swallowed and kept, in, kept alive in the belly of a huge sea creature for three days? Yes, we do. The world will laugh at you. They will mock you. You believe Jesus is literally coming back? Yes, we do. And, and the world will laugh. The world will laugh. The world will mock. They laugh in ignorance because they are blinded by unbelief and sin. And in their eyes, they think that you and I are the fool. They think you and I are the ones that are misled. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. He says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world looks at the cross and they laugh. Are you serious? You believe in somebody that lived 2,000 years ago? You, you're not going to live it up and, and fulfill all the desires of your flesh? No. We're going to serve Christ because he died on the cross for our sins. Verse 19, for it is written, this is what God says about the wisdom of the world. It's a dangerous place to be. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. God says, I will destroy it, the wisdom of the wise. 
People that think they're smarter than God, look at what the verse says. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Then he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Let me put this to you in layman terms, in 2023 terms. God has made a simple message, a a very simple, easy to understand message, okay? So simple, a child can understand it. Yet, a, a message that a child can understand, yet a message that trips people up who, thinks they are, who think they are wise in their own eyes. The fool ignores the word of God. The fool thinks he is smarter than God in the Bible. Friends, please don't be a fool. We submit our lives, our hearts, our faith, everything we have, we submit it to the authority of God's word. As a little child, that's important. When you come to faith in Christ, you have to come as a child, as a a child who looks up to mom and dad and clings on every word that they say. That's how our relationship, that's how your relationship is with your heavenly father, that you cling to every word he says and you cry out to him as Romans says, Abba, Father. He's adopted you. He's loved you. He's brought you into his family by his death on the cross. You know, we need to pray fervently for our friends and family in this situation that the Lord opens their eyes because it will not be a laughing day on judgment day. Verse 43. Verse 43, remember I said the the domino effect? It just gets the the snowball effect going down the hill from the mocking. Man, they're, they're having a heyday with Jesus out there. Look at verse 43. He's quoting Psalm 22.6, by the way. Verse 43 says, He trusts in God, let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. So this is the religious leaders here. They are mocking Jesus with the word of God. They are mocking the son of God who inspired the word of God with the word of God from Psalm chapter 22, verse 6. One of the characteristics of, of um, unbelief is people will mock the Bible. They will mock it, they will twist it, they will distort it, and they will deny the word of God. Friends, make it crystal clear. This needs to be firmly planted in our hearts and in our lives, in our theology, in our belief, in our doctrine, and that is this. Scripture is inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect, and accurate in everything it says. Who stands behind the Bible? God stands behind the Bible. It's his word. If you deny or go against the word of God, I'm just, I say this in love. I I love you. I care for you. I want to help you. But if you go against the word of God, you're going to lose the battle. You're going to lose the battle. Humble yourself and submit to its authority. It's his letter of instruction. It's his word of love to you. 
And as a, as a father directs a child, so God has given us the truth in his word. But man, these people, going back to verse 43 of Matthew 27, they're, they're, they're twisting the word of God to um, mock the Lord Jesus Christ in his helpless state on the cross. Uh, verse 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So here, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, it gives us a lot more detail. But just in summary, uh, two criminals are hanging for their crimes to the left and the right of Jesus. Likely that cross that Jesus was on was meant for who? Barabbas. Well, they let Barabbas go. So Jesus is there dying on the cross. There's a criminal to the left. There's a criminal to the right. The first criminal hurls abuse at Jesus. And he says this, and I quote, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And he what? Mocks Jesus. The second criminal, however, he rebukes the first criminal and he places his trust in Jesus. He says this, and I quote, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I did a study on the, on the seven sayings of Christ a couple years ago, and this is one of the most fascinating statements I love of Jesus that he tells, today you shall be with me in paradise. It, 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 it speaks several things. This statement that Jesus made on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. First off, it speaks to the truth of this, the, the, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith, okay? The thief on the cross did not have time for church membership. He didn't have a chance to get water baptized. He didn't get a chance to go through confirmation class. He didn't get a chance to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. He didn't get none of that. All the, that thief did on the, on, uh, that, that put his faith in Jesus, all he did was believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Lord, remember me in paradise. And so what happens? Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. The doctrine of justification by faith. You know, going to church doesn't save you. Placing your trust in Jesus is what saves you, okay? The, um, and so that's one of the core teachings. Second thing is he says, I say today you'll be in paradise. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Where, God's, where the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Friends, when you pass away, it's just a little blip. To leave this body, you will be in paradise. You will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, truly I say to you today, not 3,000 years from now when I come back again in all my glory. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. The Bible teaches three heavens. The first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth. When you walk out the door and you're going out across the parking lot, look up in the sky, you're going to see this beautiful blue sky, maybe some clouds, maybe some rain, I don't know. And then beyond that is the universe. It's endless in every direction mind-boggling for the mind to think about. But the scripture teaches there is a place called the third heaven that Paul talks about in Corinthians. He says, I know a man in Christ, whether in the body, out of the body, I do not know, but such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Death has been defeated in our lives through the death 
and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yeah, we still got to experience the death in this life, okay? And that's because of the fall. That's because of the fall. That's because of sin, the world we live in. But friend, through Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Praise the Lord. Let's look at verse 45 and verse 46. Verse 46 is really my, um, to me, this is the most powerful statement of all the statements on the cross. So we're gonna spend a little time on it. Verse 45 and verse 46. He says, now the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I was reading this week, this statement right here that Jesus made, it drove Martin Luther crazy. It drove him in, to, the, to the brink of insanity. The, uh, history tells us he went into seclusion for an indefinite period of time meditating on this statement and what it meant. The power of this statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He could not wrap his mind around, Martin Luther said he struggled with wrapping his mind around deity, God, uh, the eternal God, the Lord Jesus Christ, making this statement to the Father, which by the way, this is the only place in all the Gospels where Jesus addresses um, God as God. All the other places he addresses, he addresses God as the Father. But here he says, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? What's happening here? This is the darkest moment on the cross, okay? God's wrath and judgment is funneling down on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his helpless state? Remember the situation he's in? His lifeless body, mangled body? The wrath and judgment is being poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is ex expressing his feeling of abandonment as the Father places on him the sin of the world. Every lie, every deceptive word, every act or thought of fornication, every murder, every hate-filled thought, every secret and public sin, that David Ford has ever committed, and I've broken them all, every single one of them. I've looked at the God's moral law, I've looked at them long and hard, and you're looking at the chief of sinners. You're looking at the, the guilty criminal. But all of them, all of your sin that you've ever committed is coming funneling down, the, God's wrath for it is coming funneling down on it. Jesus is experiencing here as in verse 46, um, he's experiencing the full and complete wrath of God for every sin that you and I have ever committed. He is the lamb being placed. You know, you go back to the Old Testament and think about the tabernacle and, and think about the temple and think about the sacrifice of lambs and bulls and the process they had to go to before their blood was taken into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the lamb of God being placed on the altar uh, on the brazen altar of, of, of the cross for our sin. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 53.10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. 
putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. This statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It expresses the deepest truth of the cross. The deepest, most theological truth of the cross is this. Jesus died for my sin. He died for my sin. Jesus is being consumed in the flames of God's judgment on sin. That is love. That is love. That is deep and serious love. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which is the apex text. This is the cornerstone text of the doctrine of what we call propitiation, that Jesus died on the cross for the, as to be the sacrifice. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God punished his own co-eternal beloved son as if he had committed every sinful act that we have committed in our life. He did this so that he could forgive sin. And this is important when you think about the justice of God and you think about the, the goodness of God. God did this so he could forgive sin and listen to me carefully. And at the same time, justice could be served for the crimes of our offense. Imagine a guilty criminal in a court of law downtown Columbia, okay? He's guilty of a heinous crime. And what if the judge just says, eh, I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna let you go. Have a good day. No biggie. You broke the law, but have a good life. I'm gonna let you go. What would you say about that judge? He's corrupt. He's corrupt. The goodness of God, the justice of God, demands the righteousness of God. And, and, and the law had been broken. We had broken the law. Jesus did not. But Jesus stepped in and paid our fine. So, this statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At the cross, Jesus paid the legal fine in the justice courtroom of God for our sin. Can you say hallelujah? Hallelujah, man. Praise the Lord, man. All of it. All of it. And here's the cool thing. When you become a Christian and you become born again, not only are you forgiven of all the past sin that you've ever committed, and buddy, my, man, ladies and gentlemen, my list is long. But he, 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 you're forgiven of your present sin. And guess what? You're going to sin in the future. You're going to blow it. You probably blow it uh, before you leave church today. <laughs> okay? You'll probably blow it four or five times this afternoon in some kind of thought, word, or action. Man, we're just, we're just wretched sinners. We're sinners in need of grace. But the cross of Calvary covers everything. It covers everything. The, the sin that, that you're going to f- slip into, that you're going to make a mistake, you're going to blow it along the way, it's all covered under the blood when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the gospel. He died on the cross for our sin. He took the wrath of God. And, and it, it was an amazing thing.
what he did for us. Let's, let's finish it up here. Wow, that was, that was deep. That was deep. That was deep. And to think about what's going to happen in two days. You know, we're kind of in the valley. We're in the valley. We're in the dark valley right now of Calvary. Looking at the cross. Looking at Golgotha. Looking at the torment. Looking at the, 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 the terrible scene it was of Calvary. But hang on. In two days, we're going to be doing the Holy Ghost hop. We're going to be doing the Carmen song, the Holy Ghost hop. We're going to be celebrating and rejoicing with all of our hearts. Because after he goes through this, he's going to rise from the grave. And he's going to be the reigning, ruling, conquering king of the universe. The savior of the world. Risen from the dead. The light of the world. Beautiful and glorious. It's going to be awesome. But you've got to understand the bad news. You've got to understand the dark stuff before you can understand the good news and the glory. Without the bad news, the good news is not good news. Without the difficult parts, the good stuff is, is, is lost, it's lost in its meaning. Verse 47. And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge. He filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave him a drink. So Jesus here, they believe that he is calling for Elijah. Now there's multiple interpretations of this passage. Um, if, you, if, if people believe that these are Roman soldiers making this statement, they base that, um, they think that he's saying that because he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It, mistaken that phrase, Eli, Eli. Well, maybe he's calling for Elijah. If, if, if the Jewish people are making this statement, it has to do with prophecy. And they know that Elijah will come in. The end. We're not sure. It could be either way. But the bottom line is, is there's this wow factor across. Whoa, look! He's calling for Elijah. This is, which is the interpretation I lean towards. Uh, but he, he's calling for Elijah. So what do they do in their fanaticism? wanting to hear some prophetic word, thinking maybe this is the very end. They want to sustain Jesus. They want to sustain Jesus. So they go get him drink without gall to, to see if, let's give him some drink. Let's see if he'll, if he'll finish what he is saying. Let's see if he'll finish this prophecy. But verse 49 says, in verse 49, 50 says, but the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And then verse 50, our final verse this morning. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I can't help but to think of Jesus on the cross. In the Gospel of Matthew says a loud voice. This was like the final thing. This was the final thing. He'd been in a lot of pain. It was very difficult for him to make long statements. That's why he made all the short statements. But here with a loud voice. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What are the final two statements that Jesus made on the cross? There are seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. The final two were, it is finished. It is finished. When Jesus made that statement on the cross, it is finished. He is saying this, that the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross was complete. It was final. There will be no more sacrifices. 
There'll be no more lambs. There'll be no more bulls. There'll be no more sacrifices in the tabernacle, which that, that had passed from, the, from them making their way to Israel. There'll be no more sacrifices in the temple. It is finished. Salvation for you and I has been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is finished. The process is complete for our salvation. And when you trust in Christ and you believe in Christ and you receive him as your Lord and Savior, the the process for you to be saved is finished. God fills you with his Holy Spirit and guess what? He keeps you from that day forward. And the other final statement, which I believe runs in conjunction with verse 50, is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I love that. You know why I love that so much when you study the cross? Because the previous statement, what did Jesus say? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, which is the only place in scripture where he calls him, my God, my God, all other places he says, my father in his suffering. But here, after the sacrifice is finished, Jesus returned back to his title for God the Father, which is Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't that just a warm, welcoming statement to hear Jesus finish with on the cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, God's hand is mighty. It's powerful. And Jesus is saying, not my God, my God, but he's saying, my Father, my Father in heaven, into your hands, into your eternal hands that, that created the universe, that created all things, I'm committing uh, myself, I'm committing my spirit into your hands. Jesus trusted his Father to the very end is the, is the theological statement that I get from that statement. He trusted his Father to the very end. And check this out. God the Father is going to come through big time. He's going to come through big time. Jesus on the cross, you know, you have to, sometimes we have to look at Jesus from his humanity. Sometimes we have to look at him from his deity. But in his humanity, as he's making these statements there on the cross, he's saying, I'm trusting you, God. And God the Father's like, everybody stand back. Watch out. Because early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene's going to discover something that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. This message is so huge and so big, it's going to change the world. Our, our time clock is going to be changed by the life of the, and death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, B.C. and A.D. I go back to my statement that I opened my sermon with. How do you define the love of God? This, my friend, is how you define the love of God, by the cross. John 15, 13 says, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his, one's life for his friend. That top statement, greater love has no one than this, God is speaking in scripture and he is saying that this is the greatest love. No one can demonstrate love like Jesus. No one can define love 
greater than Jesus. This is the greatest love, the message of the cross. And to define that great love, John 15, 13, then to lay down one's life for his friends. How cool is that? Jesus calls his friends. He calls you friend. He calls you child. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. But he calls you friend. What do we like to do with our friends? What do you like to do with your friends? I like to hang out with them. I like to go places with them. I like, I like to go hunting with them and go fishing with them and go do things with my friends. I like to be in community and fellowship with my friends. Well, friends, Jesus has done that for us. He is your friend, and he goes with you everywhere you go in life. Whether you're at work, at home, um, fishing, hunting, on a road trip, wherever you go in this life, wherever you go on planet Earth, he will go with you because he is your friend. What a beautiful statement. Jesus is our friend. Jesus' death on the cross is the evidence of God's love directed at you. To doubt the love of God, you would have to doubt the cross. To doubt the cross, you would have to doubt the love of God. They go hand in hand. They're like a glove and hand that fit together and they come to us. The love of God, he died on the cross. It's not just enough to say to someone, God loves you, brother, God bless you, even though we like to say that, and it is true, it is true, it is true, but there's a deeper truth. And as George, he displayed his love for you at the cross. So as you and I are going throughout this life, and we ever question the love of God when we're going through a difficult situation or tragedy strikes or something bad happens in life, all we have to do is look to the historical fact that Jesus died on the cross. That, my friend, is the love of God. He proved his love for you by going to the cross. So here's the question. How will you respond to this love? If you are a born-again Christian, my, this, this love, how you should respond to it, you should respond to Christ with devotion, with love, with obedience, with allegiance to him. There should be no one greater in your life because he's that good. Our allegiance and our love and our devotion should go to Christ and Christ alone. We don't bow to this world. We don't bow to this culture. We bow to one. And that is, the, you don't even bow to me. You don't bow to church. You, you bow to Christ Jesus because he died on your cross for your sins. So your, your allegiance and your love and your devotion, Christian, should be towards Christ. If you're not born again or you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, how can, you say, Pastor David, how can I experience this love of the cross? How can I experience this love that you're talking about? It's simple. Repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus and receive him as your Lord and Savior. You say, God, it's, it's this simple. You bow your head and you say, God, I am a sinner. 
I have broken your laws. I am guilty on all accounts. Please forgive me of all my sin, all my lies, all my lust, all all of it, God, all the sin that I've committed. Please forgive me, and I turn away from it. That's repentance, to say, God, forgive me of my sin. He knows them all. He knows them all. You don't have to go through and name each and every single one, but to say, God, the rebellion that's been in my life, please forgive me. That's repentance. And then faith. Faith simply means you no longer trust in yourself, but you put your trust in Jesus' cross. And you place your faith in him. You no longer trust in yourself. You no longer trust in your parents. You no longer trust in your church for salvation or any of that stuff. You trust in Jesus. And then, they kind of all three go together, repent, believe, receive. I just like to explain them all. And you just say, you open your heart and you say, Lord Jesus, I surrender. Please come into my heart. Come into my life. If you haven't done that, friend, what are you waiting on? There's no greater love. There's no greater love. You, you will experience the mountain peaks, the mountain peak, not peaks, of God's love when you trust in Jesus. Live for him, serve him. If that's you and you're here in person or you're listening online, let today be the day of salvation. Bow your head and say, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Lord Jesus, please come into my life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And when you do that and you mean it, hang on. The great adventure is going to begin. You're going to live your life for him. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this study this morning of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that it is the demonstration of your love. It is the icon. It is the stamp. It is, let it be ingrained in each and every mind, in my mind, in all of our minds, of the love that you displayed for us at the cross. Lord, I pray for the Christians that their love and their obedience and their allegiance will grow deeper to you. And I pray, Lord, for anyone that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, that they will open their hearts to you and invite you to come into their life through repentance and faith. Lord, move by our move mightily by your Holy Spirit. Come after us, Lord. Come after us, God. Consume us with a passion for the knowledge of you, our faith in you. Lord, we know we don't have to have it all together. Nobody has it all together. But you invite us to come unto you. So Lord, we do that right now by faith. We come to you. Renew our hearts, renew our minds, and renew our lives as we live for you. First in Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.